Our American Stories, and now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, On Being Frank. I was uh, a manager of a floor of a dorm at a college in Boston, where I got to live for free in an apartment in exchange for work of making sure the kids didn't burn the place down. And there was a security guard at the elevator. His name was John. I won't say his last name. Doesn't matter. And uh, we, as you wait for the elevator, as I wait for the elevator, I opened a conversation with him, got to know him a little bit better. Uh, we never went out for drinks or dinner or anything like that, but just uh, elevator conversation. And then one day I said to him, and I realized this guy had more capability than sitting at a desk and checking kids' IDs. And I said, John, you know, I think you could do more with your life than this. And 20 years later, I got a letter in the mail from John on stationery, on a corporate stationery. And he mentioned, he said, you may not remember, but of course I do remember. The comment that you made changed my life. No one ever said a positive thing like that, that I could do better than, than what I was doing. And your comment motivated me to go back to school to get a degree in accounting. And now I'm running a forensic accounting firm. And I just thought that you'd like to know, and I want to thank you for that. So it's very important to me when you see people doing exceptional work, to say something about that. You can change their day, their week, and in this case, their life, by just saying a pause, giving them direction or giving them a positive comment. By the way, I also don't hold back on giving negative comments. <laughs> if you get the bad service, you should make that clear. Maybe not to that person, but to that person's manager. Because less, these are lessons. You can help people by giving them inspirational comments, and you can help people by telling them that they did something wrong and why it was wrong and how to, to perform better. Recently, a friend of mine told me a story. He's a uh, friend from where, many years back, and unfortunately, he had prostate cancer, and he's been treated, hopefully successfully. But during part of these treatments, he went to the hospital, and he just related this story to me. They put a um, name tag on you at hospitals now to make sure there's no errors and they barcode and everything. And uh, he didn't check the uh, bracelet they put on him. 
And he went then to the next station where they were supposed to inject him with various chemicals or do some tests. And they read the name tag and it was incorrect. It was the incorrect name tag and label bracelet, right? Now, he told me when the service people asked him, well, who gave you that? We want to follow up. He says, no, no, be, be nice to them. Well, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. When someone makes an error, a, and that's a serious error, someone's life could have been, could have been affected in a very negative way. He could have been killed. If, if they didn't check his name tag and gave him the wrong medicine, he could have died. So I believe in, you know, it's nice, it's obviously better if you can give positive reinforcement when things happen, when you see an opportunity, but it's also very important to give people frank and honest assessments and to fire them if necessary, to fire people. Now my company, uh, we have a very good retention rate. We have many people have stayed with the company, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and even now 30 years of the company because we're careful in hiring. But nevertheless, we're not perfect. And our rule of the company is if you hire someone that doesn't work out, you should fire them. Now, firing sounds cruel in some ways. Of course, nobody likes to fire someone and nobody likes to be fired. But think of it this way. I tell my managers in the company to think about that person who isn't working out. You are stealing years from their life by keeping them in a position where they're not doing a good job. And they probably know it, whether or not they don't know, whether or not they know it, you are stealing from them the opportunity of going somewhere else where they may be very, very effective and happy. So I, I see uh, terminating people or hiring people as something that, that is very important, very precious. You're dealing with people's lives most people don't think about this, but you're going to spend more time at work than with your spouse, than with your friends. It, of your awake time, you're going to spend probably 80% of it at work. So you better enjoy it. You better like the people you're around, because if you don't, you're wasting your life. And thanks for that advice. And Dr. Bob, always telling stories, and that's why he's here. This is not love line or advice line. But stories always drive our lessons from Dr. Bob. And again, Bob is the founder of Cognex, the world's leader in machine vision systems. But that's not why he's here. It's his wisdom. It's his voice. It's, it's his compassion. And if you want to hear more life lessons from Dr. Bob, go to our website, OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Continue with our American stories, and we have previously brought you the story of the world's most innovative school, 
the Acton Academy, and you can hear that story at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today, we bring you a childhood story from its co-founder, Jeff Sandifer. And here's Jeff. I was born and raised in Abilene, Texas, a small town of 100,000 people out in West Central Texas, to a father I loved dearly, but who was almost out of the movies, in the sense of he was like the movie giant, if you've ever seen it, where um, he was an oil wildcatter. And so we were rich one year and broke the next, even though he never let on. <laughs> so, uh, so it was a middle, upper middle class background, but with a dad who was, in all good ways and bad ways, a gambler and an entrepreneur. I remember coming back from business school and oil prices had crashed, and by then I could kind of read a balance sheet and an income statement, and I said, Dad, look, you're broke. I mean, oil prices have crashed, and I said, you really need to sell your airplane. And he said, well, son, I'll tell you one thing. I may be going to the poorhouse, but they better have a runway, because I'll be damned if I'm going to drive there. <laughs> so, and he didn't sell the airplane, and he made his way back out of it. And so, you know, later in life I knew, I think early, you know, Kids know. Kids know when families are having trouble. Kids know when the father or the mother are having financial problems. But it's often an unspoken knowing. And so um, I had a wonderful childhood, but I'm certain that I picked up the tension of the times when he was scrambling what that felt like. And he was ultimately very successful. It was just every time he would get ahead, he loved the game. So he would bet more. You know, he would keep betting to get further ahead. And then every once in a while, he would lose his stake and have to start over. And uh, that's just the way he was built. It was not my decision to work. I was a very good student, but despite that, uh, he insisted I go work in the oil field. And so I went out every day as a small guy and worked with roustabouts who had been paid minimum wage, working from, as we said out there, from can see to can't see, from whenever the sun came up to whenever the sun went down. And I hated every minute of it. And it was one of the most formative things in my life because I learned that, you know, there are people that work very hard every day and bless them. I mean, you know, it's actually, I admire that, but it's hard. I remember I had um, one day it rained and it doesn't rain in the summer very often in Abilene, but it rained and we couldn't go out on the truck to do the hard manual labor. My boss was named Armando. And, you know, being that I was a middle-class white kid, it probably wasn't his favorite. And they're all gonna go inside and play cards, so I get to watch them play cards. I knew I couldn't play because I was only 15, but I could watch. And Armando said, oh, Junior, called me Junior, he said, see that big stack of rocks over there? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, I would like for you to move them to the other side of the yard. So these big giant rocks. And so I spent all morning in the rain moving those rocks. And I got finished and I thought, finally I get to go inside. And Armando came out and he said, oh, Junior, I am very sorry. I've decided I like the rocks back where they were. So I spent the afternoon, and every rock I moved, I was more determined I was gonna work for myself from then on, and no one was ever gonna boss me around like that again. So Armando, you know, whether he did it on purpose or not, I'll never know, but did me a great service, because moving those rocks, I was determined after that, you know, I was gonna be my own boss. My guess is that it, he, he did a lot of other things that showed he didn't like me very much, and I probably wouldn't have liked me either, so I don't blame him. But, uh, but I, do, I do remember moving those rocks all afternoon back to where they'd been in the first place. We were being paid $2.35 an hour, which was pretty good because minimum wage was $1.65 then. And I had worked about a 60-hour week because, as I said, we were working long hours. 
And I calculated to the penny what I was due, and I got my first check. And it didn't add up. And so I went to see my boss, and I said, look, I work this many hours, overtime's time and a half, and for more than time and a half, I get even double time. And, and, he, and I said, well, you're missing some money. And he said, um, well, that's, we take that out for taxes. And I've been mad about that ever since. So uh, I just I couldn't believe they took a third of my paycheck out for taxes. Yeah, I've got dreams of things that I would do that would just be simple fixes, things like term limits. But one of the ones I would love to have is we just move tax time and voting both to March 15th. Because then you could have your year-end taxes calculated. And right before you vote, you write a lump sum check of whatever your taxes are, sales tax, all your taxes, and then you go vote. And that way it would be very visible to everyone right before they voted of how much you paid for all the services, and you could decide whether you wanted that, whether you were well served or not. I think it would fix a lot of problems. So after about three years of uh, working in the sun, I was very much tired of that. And, uh, and I can remember the, the, the last summer I really worked as a laborer, we started out breaking oil field line pipe, and this is pipe that kind of runs along the surface. And in those days, it was big, heavy metal pipe. And so we were taking up an old pipeline and we would break off one joint of pipe and you could barely pick it up and put it on the truck. And you could look over the horizon and the pipeline just kept going. And so I wasn't very big again, so I had to jump on the wrenches to break the pipe out and pick it up. When we started that summer, you could see over the horizon. We worked all summer on that pipeline. At the end of the summer, you could still see all the way over the horizon. So however many miles of pipe we picked up, it didn't appear to have made any difference. So I noticed that at that job, the workers were all paid minimum wage and did their best to smoke dope and hang out and you know, being paid by the hour, so why not? And it took about three days for a normal painting job to paint a normal uh, oil tank. Well, I went out and I recruited high school football coaches the next summer my high school football coaches agreed to pay them by the tank and they hired their players and so they would get out to the lease at dawn they could paint three tanks in one day not one tank in three days so a nine times productivity gain i put on a coat and tie and went and saw all of the oil operators and convinced them we could clean up their leases we charged about two-thirds the price of our competitors because we had our cost structure was so much lower and so that summer we made $100,000 in revenue. We netted $80,000 before taxes. Still best business I've ever had profit margin wise. The coaches made three times as much as they would have made all year working as coaches. Um, and had the very good fortune that this is now 1978-79. Oil prices have gone up in the early 70s and now you have the oil embargo. So now all the operators have a lot of money and they never cleaned up their leases. So this was kind of, as often happened in my life, I got really lucky with a good idea at the right time. And therefore, we got to paint a lot of tanks. You had to be prepared. I just, I, I've just always been stunned at how lucky I am. So I'm not sure I'm stunned by how prepared I am, but I just get, uh, I do believe the luckier, the more you believe you're lucky, you actually see more opportunities. And so there's research that suggests people who think they're lucky actually have better outcomes. But I think it's related to the vision, and I don't mean long-term vision, I mean even up close. You expect to see good things and you see things other people don't see. But in any event, I know I've been really lucky. And most importantly, I got to stay in the air conditioning in the truck and I didn't have to work out in the field anymore.
So that was, that was kind of my first real business, and it was a lot of fun. And it was just as simple as changing the incentives. I mean, that's really all we did is we changed the incentives, and it changed everything. Now, we did have a little quality control problem that these coaches would paint anything silver that moved. So, I mean, they would paint tanks, they would paint gates, they would paint cows, they would paint... So, you know, like with anything, incentives matter, and then incentives will create unintended consequences. They painted the ground a lot. And other, I mean, it was not high-quality paint. Uh, we had to really come back to them and set some quality standards or getting paid by the tank, right? They would paint them as quickly and as poorly as they could get away with. So the story's fun to tell, but there were lots of bumps along the way. Uh, I do remember seeing one of those coaches my senior year, which was the, after that summer, and uh, he was the weight coach. So you can imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, he was, you know, and he had on a beret. And everybody was scared of him, but of course he worked for me. I said, oh, hey coach, where'd you get that hat? And he said, oh, you like that, do you? And I said, no, I just asked where you got it. And so I got to run laps for, for the rest of the day. So my employee-employer relationship did not uh, extend to the uh, football field or the track circle. So as long as we each knew our role, I think, and the incentives were okay, we were okay in the oil field. And then I needed to, it was my fault that I didn't understand that didn't transfer out to the uh, athletic fields. Nor should it have, by the way. I, he was right. I should have run laps for being a smart aleck. And you've been listening to Jeff Sandifer. And my goodness, what a life story. Abilene, Texas, where we have good friends. If you ever get a chance, go just outside Abilene to Perini's. It's a terrific steak joint, and it's got this giant metal armadillo in the front of it. You won't forget it. And we love Texas. We love the whole country here. It's just all beautiful, and it's all so different. And my goodness, the work he's been doing with the Acton Academies. To learn more about his extraordinary schools, visit actonacademy.org. There are now about 150 Actons around the world, and there should be one in every community. And anyone listening can start one. You don't need to be an expert. You don't need to be a PhD, have a license. That's the beauty of Acton Academy. Go to actonacademy.org. You can change the world in your community. You can change the education standards in your community. That's actonacademy.org. Jeff Sandifer's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and Dr. Rick Rigsby is a San Francisco Bay Area native, an award-winning TV journalist. He followed his six-year television news career with a six-year graduate school stint, culminating with a PhD from the University of Oregon. Graduate school was followed by two decades as a college professor, the last 14 years at Texas A&M University, where Rick also served as character coach and chaplain for the Aggies football team. Dr. Rigsby is the author of Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout, the story of timeless common sense wisdom learned from his father. He was invited to speak at the California State University Maritime Commencement in Northern California. Parts of his speech have since gone viral, and you will understand why in a minute, but some of the greatest parts were left out. Not today. Let's begin with Rigsby's opening remarks. I won't be long. 
We have a lot of activities. Some of them will go into the late hours of the night. But I come from a predominantly black family. I don't know if you all can tell that or not. And I happen to be an ordained minister. Now that's a lethal combination when it comes to time. Give Big Daddy some chicken wings, I'll talk to you all day long. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. But in the words of King Henry VIII, as he spoke to each of his six wives, I won't keep you long, but... I will be very brief and on point. I promise you that. Brief and on point is always something we want to hear at a commencement. Let's dive headfirst into Rigsby's talk to these college grads. You won't ever receive the kind of knowledge that you've received in your time here. But I wish that you would couple that knowledge with something else. Wisdom. Wisdom from a mother. Wisdom from a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, an uncle, an aunt, a friend. Wisdom from somewhere. That, that combination will keep you centered regardless of the turbulence of the sea. It's not about making a nice impression. It's about making an impact. It's about doing your best. So how do we make an impact? I learned how to make an impact from the wisest person I ever met in my life. A third grade dropout. Wisest and dropout in the same sentence is rather oxymoronic. Like jumbo shrimp. Mm Mm-hmm. Like fun run. Ain't nothing fun about it. Like Microsoft works. Y'all don't hear me. I used to say like country music, but I've lived in Texas so long. I I love country music now. In fact, yeah. I hunt, I fish, I have cowboy boots and cowboy... Y'all, I'm a black neck redneck. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? No longer oxymoronic for me to say country music. And it's not oxymoronic for me to say third grade and dropout. That third grade dropout, the wisest person I ever met in my life, who taught me to combine knowledge and wisdom to make an impact, was my father. And let's hear more about his dad. My daddy grew up in the piney woods of East Texas, a little town called Huntsville, Texas. After World War II was over, my father decided to be the only one in his family to migrate west. And in the 1950s, he found his way to the San Francisco Bay Area, fell in love with a forklift driver. My mother was a bad mamma jamma, let me tell you right now, baby. (laughs) Didn't need a man, he was just there. (laughs) My mother was a forklift driver over the Benicia Arsenal, uh, where they would, uh, she would provide the services to support uh, the war efforts during World War II. In the 50s, my mother and father get married and they migrate to this area. My father gets a job as a cook, a simple cook. Wisest man I ever met in my life. Left school in the third grade to help out on the family farm, but just because he left school doesn't mean his education stopped. Mark Twain once said, I've never allowed my schooling to get in the way of my education. My father taught himself how to read, taught himself how to write, decided in the midst of Jim Crowism, as America was breathing the last gasp of the Civil War, my father decided he was gonna stand and be a man. Not a black man, 
Not a brown man, not a white man, but a man. He literally challenged himself to be the best that he could all the days of his life. Dr. Rigsby's not done talking about his father. I have four degrees. My brother is a judge. We're not the smartest ones in our family. It's a third grade dropout daddy. Uh, a third grade dropout daddy who was quoting Michelangelo when he was a cook at Cal Maritime, saying to us, boys, I won't have a problem if you aim high and miss, but I'm gonna have a real issue if you aim low and hit. Uh, a country mother quoting Henry Ford, saying if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're right. I learned that from a third grade drop. Simple lessons, lessons like these. Son, don't judge people. Son, I've worked at Cal Maritime. You know, I've been all over the world. I've seen good and bad in every shade. Don't judge people. The tendency of a person is to walk away from somebody that's different from them. You stay there and you get to know them. Never judge. Then he dropped Jonathan Swift on me, who said vision is the ability to see the invisible. Don't judge. Another lesson from this third grade dropout. Son, you'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. We never knew what time it was at my house because the clocks were always ahead. My father had the breakfast and lunch shift here at the academy. He had to be at work at five o'clock. We lived on tennis, we lived on Louisiana Street, 15 minutes away. My mother said for nearly 30 years, my father left the house at 345 in the morning. One day she asked him, why daddy? He said, maybe one of my boys will catch me in the act of excellence. I want to share two things with you. Aristotle said, you are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Don't ever forget that. The other thing I want to share with you is Harvard Business Review, September 2004. The article is titled, Deep Smarts. Here's the thesis. Lecturing, what our universities are based upon, is the worst kind of teaching method, usually. <laughs> Present company excluded. <laughs> that if you want to get the intended message across, model the behavior. My daddy a third grade dropout, a cook, was modeling excellence for his boys, combining academic knowledge and old school wisdom. That's what makes an impact. Don't judge, model excellence. Those were lessons one and two. It's time for lesson three from Rick's daddy. Lesson number three, be kind to people. He always told us kind deeds are never lost. I get to do a lot of NFL chapels. You see some amazing things with those National Football League players. You see guys that can bench press 200, 300 pounds 20 times. You see folks that are huge, that can run like a deer. You see folks from a flat-footed position jump 40 inches, 40-inch vertical leap. I even saw a white guy do it once. But the point... <laughs> you know what stops me in my tracks? When I see one of those rich folks show kindness, it literally stops the world. George Washington Carver said, when common people do common things in uncommon ways, they command the attention of the world. I just described your grandmother. I know you're tough. I know you're seaworthy, but always remember to be kind. Always. Don't ever forget that. Never embarrass mama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. If daddy ain't happy, don't nobody care. But, you know, I tell you. And when we come back, more from Dr. Rick Rigsby. And he's the author of Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout. 
boy, he's talking about his dad. He's talking to the California State University Maritime Commencement in Northern California. More of his story and his daddy's story here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return to Dr. Rick Rigsby's Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout commencement speech at Cal State University Maritime. And by the way, we do commencement speeches during the season, but also all year round, because so many good commencement speeches are floating out there. We occasionally even do really terrible ones, too. But let's return to Rigsby's. And here, the good doctor kicks it up. A couple of notches. Next lesson. Lesson from a cook over there in the galley. Son, make sure your servant's towel is bigger than your ego. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Y'all might have a relative in mind you want to send that to. Let me say it again. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Pride is the burden of a foolish person. You'll never be a great shipmate. You'll never be a great executive. You'll never be a great teammate if it's all about you. John Wooden coached basketball at UCLA for a living, but his calling was to impact people. And with all those national championships, guess what he was found doing in the middle of the week? Going into the cupboard, grabbing a broom, and sweeping his own gym floor. You want to make an impact? Find your broom. Every day of your life, you find your broom. Let's continue. Final lesson. Son, if you're going to do a job, do it right. I know grammatically that's not correct. It ought to be do it well, but I like that old school ghetto kind (laughs) of do it the right way. I'm thinking about a little boy in Los Angeles. All he wants to do is play little league baseball. His mother can't even afford to buy him a glove. And he eventually plays little league, and he's really good. And he's so good he gets a scholarship to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And he's so good he gets drafted by the San Diego Padres. And he's so good he helps the St. Louis Cardinals win a World Series. Twelve years ago when Ozzie Smith walked into the Hall of Fame, he said during his induction speech, and in part I quote word for word, he said, I've always been told how average I can be. But I want to tell you something. I stand here before you, before all of these people, not listening to those words, but telling myself every single day to be the best that I can be. Good enough isn't good enough if it can be better, and better isn't good enough if it can be best. Rigsby concludes this last lesson with a story. Back in the 70s, to help me make this point, let me introduce you to someone. I met the finest woman I'd ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. Back in my day, we'd have called her a brick 
house. <laughs> I was going to that great academic institution in the North, Chico State. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Probably studying really hard. <laughs> Let me just put it to you like this. I, I haven't always been a preacher, if you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> this woman was the finest woman I'd ever seen in my life. There's just one little problem. Back then, ladies didn't like big old linemen. The blind side hadn't come out yet. <laughs> they, they like quarterbacks and running backs. Any former quarterbacks or running backs here? Raise your hands. Why, a couple of you? Punks. Anyway, so we're at this dance, and I find out her name is Trina Williams from Lompoc, California. And, and we, we're all dancing, and we're, we're just, just excited. And I decide in the middle of dancing with her that I would ask her for a phone number. She, Trina was the first one... Trina was the only woman in college who gave me her real telephone number. <laughs> the next day, we walked to Baskin and Robbins ice cream parlor. My friends couldn't believe it. This has been 40 years ago, and my friends still can't believe it. We go on a second date, and a third date, and a fourth date. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we drive from Chico to Vallejo so that she could meet my parents. My father meets her, my daddy, my hero. He meets her, pulls me to the side and says, is she psycho? But anyway, <laughs> we go together for a year, two years, three years, four years. By now, Trina's a senior in college. I'm still a freshman, but I'm working some things out. <laughs> I'm so glad I graduated in four terms. Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan. <laughs> So now it's, it's, it's time to propose, so I talk to her girlfriends, and it's California, it's in the 70s, so it has to be outside, have to have a candle, and you have to have, you know, some chocolate. Listen, I'm from the hood, I had a bottle of Boone's Farm wine, that's what I had. She said yes! That was the key. I married the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. Y'all ever been to a wedding, and even before the wedding starts, you hear this, how in the world? And it was coming from my side of the family. <laughs> we get married. We have a few children. Our lives are great. Their lives are great. But then... One day, Trina finds a lump in her left breast. Breast cancer. Six years after that diagnosis, me and my two little boys walked up to mommy's casket. And for two years, my heart didn't beat. If it wasn't for my faith in God, I, I wouldn't be standing here today. If it wasn't for those two little boys, there would have been no reason for which to go on. I was completely lost. That was rock bottom. You know what sustained me? The wisdom of a third grade dropout. The wisdom of a simple cook from California Maritime Academy. We're at the casket in College Station, Texas. I'd never seen my dad cry. Big, strong man. There are several alumni that remember Riggs that are here. We've been sharing stories all weekend. But this time I saw my dad cry. That was his daughter. Trina was his daughter, not his daughter-in-law. And I'm right behind my father, about to see her for the last time on this earth. And my father shared three words with me that changed my life right there at the casket. It would be the last lesson he would ever teach me. He said, son, you keep standing. 
no matter what you don't give up. I learned that lesson from a third grade dropout who was a cook at Cal Maritime who said, boy, you keep standing no matter what. I stood and a miracle took place. A couple of years later, my heart started to beat again. I'm talking in a group about like this when all of a sudden I spot the finest woman I've ever met in my life again. <laughs> First thing Janet did after we got married was she adopted those little boys, fulfilling Trina's last wish that her babies not go through life without a mommy. And then we decided to do something really bright. We thought 16, 17 years ago, and that was have more children. It's worked out lovely. And I'm honored to tell you that we had more boys. I have four boys from 34 years old all the way down to my daddy's youngest grandson, who's here with me this weekend, Joshua Rigsby, sitting on the front row right there. And what a story this is, folks. Not your ordinary commencement speech. I would have remembered this one. Son, you keep standing. Remember Denzel Washington, fall forward. His great commencement speech, fall forward. Dr. Rigsby makes this final point, and it's more salient than any of his previous words. And again, this is a commencement speech at California State University Maritime, and Dr. Rick Rigsby's Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout is... Well, it's a book about his dad. Let's take a listen. Let me take you back to two days before Trina died. No hair because of chemotherapy, cadets. A tummy pooched out because of a liver no longer working. She weighed about 75 pounds. I'm in the kitchen so I can keep an eye on her in the family room. She's surrounded by pillows. Our then youngest son, Andrew, walks up with a shirt that he wants mommy to fold. And this is what I hear from Trina. Andrew, Mama, not always gonna be there to help you. She was saying goodbye. And I was so moved, I waited for Andrew to leave and I walked over and I sat next to her on the couch. And as clearly as I'm talking to you today, these were some of her last words to me. She looked me in the eye and she said, it doesn't matter to me any longer how long I live. What matters to me most is how I live. How you living? How you living? Every day ask yourself that question, how you living? Here's, here's what a cook would suggest. That you would not judge. That you would show up early. That you'd be kind. That you'd make sure that that servant's towel is huge and used. That if you're going to do something, you do it the right way. That, that, that cook would tell you this, that it's never wrong to do the right thing. That how you do anything is how you do everything. And in that way, you will grow your influence to make an impact. In that way, you will honor all those who have gone before you, who have invested in you. It is with great honor that I say all your life, look in those unlikeliest places for wisdom. Enhance your life every day by seeking that wisdom and asking yourself every night, how am I living? May God richly bless y'all. Thank you for having me here.
And what a speech. Dr. Rick Rigsby's story, his father's story, his bride Trina's story. How are you living? Good question to ask every day to yourself and all of your loved ones. All of their stories here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to help perpetuate policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And now it's time for our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's story. Jack Marucci is the director of LSU's athletic training, but he's also a dad. My son was, uh, he's about seven, eight years old, Gino, and we used to watch a lot of baseball. I'd even play old videos with Pirates, Roberto Clemente, so that became his guy. And he liked Bonds as bad. He saw the black and two-tone wood bat. He goes, Dad, I like that. Man, I want to play with a wood bat. That's different, because wood bats weren't even mentioned back then. You know, now you got wood bat tournaments, and everybody likes the wood bat. So uh, I end up calling all these bat companies. They all had stock bats, none more small enough or short enough. Everybody maybe was an inch off. I needed a 27. And they only stopped at 29 or they stopped at 28. So I started looking around and there were some old bats stored here at LSU. I'm looking at them. And then we had a quarterback, Matt Mock. I started talking to Matt. Matt played for the Cubs for three years. I said, Matt, I'm, I'm thinking about making a bat for my son. I'm going to make one. I'm going to bring it in. Tell me what we need to do to, to make this thing tapered right. So I made the first one and uh, top heavy, you know, I use electrical tape to, <laughs> to do whatever. And I, I carved in, I think that one was the Geno Crusher. So the next one I start making, I got a lot better. And that was the Geno Slugger. So he starts getting in Little League, he's using a wood bat. Okay, this is different, but he's, he's one of the best hitters. So everybody on the team goes, well, if he's hitting good with that bat, I want one with my kid's name on it. So we'll form a little company, Marucci Bat Company. So I bought a shed. I bought it from Canada. It's a cedar shed. I told the guy what I wanted because I thought cedar's going to last longer in this weather, the mildew, the, you know, it's not going to rot. I said, I want doors in the front and the back. He goes, why do you want that? I said, have you ever lived in Louisiana? I said, it's like living on the equator. I said, I need airflow. So I put a fan in there and that was my bat shop. And it, you know, that was 2002. Jack went to the trouble of buying a shed when he was just making a few bats for his kid and some little league friends. Because I had to get a lathe, I had to put it somewhere, and I had a carport. So I ended up, after football, I always joke around, I said saving was a little stressful, so it was a nice stress relief to get away. That's championship coach Nick Saban. So I'd spend nights and the neighbor would come over and go, what are you doing? There's sawdust everywhere. I go, I'm making bats. He goes, you're making bats? He goes, give me a couple. You know, everyone, as soon as they saw it, they go, oh, 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 I want one. But he didn't. 
charge them for it. I wasn't at first, so I started 25 bucks. I mean, the wood cost probably 15. And because uh, money was never a thing, I, I felt bad. I felt bad that I was going to charge somebody for it. Then I said, well, I better start charging because, you know. Because this is getting a little bit ridiculous? <laughs> well, one day, Jack was going to hang with a friend of his, Eduardo Perez, who just happened to be a major league player. And we're catching up. And I told him what I was doing. He goes, bring me one up. I said, all right. And he gave me a model, which was a common model. Everything was based off of Louisville Slugger models, a C243. I said, all right, I think I can find one in the pile because LSU had some wood bats laying around. I found one that I would hang it on the hanger. I had two hangers, you know, I'd straighten out the, the wire and it would hang right over the lathe. So I'm looking at it and I could, you know, feel it. I would do it by eye and feel. I would cut the bat. I think I made him two. And I mean, what's he going to do with it? Maybe he's just going to put it up in his house. So he meets me in front of the hotel and he, and he pulls out the box and his eyes light up. And he goes, man, he goes, I'm going to use this tonight. I said, what? I said, this thing's going to explode, Eddie. I said, I've seen seven and eight-year-olds swing this. I said, you're going to swing this, this thing? He goes, I'm going to sneak it in because I wasn't licensed. You know, you, there's all these regulations which you find out. And uh, he goes, I tell you what. I want you to come down for batting practice. I said, okay. He gets me down there and he goes, this bat is unbelievable. Then he introduces me to, to Barry Larkin. He's playing for the Reds. He uh, says, I tell you what, we're playing in Houston. I want you to make me one. <laughs> I said, all right. Then he introduced me to Albert Pujols. One of the best players on the planet. He was very leery, and Eddie talked to him in Spanish. And that was the first bat was ever given to me to, to replicate. So me and my son go to Houston, and Eddie says, get there early for batting practice. He wants you to bring the bat. So I'm walking in the stadium with a bat. I said, I, I gave it to my son. I go, here, Gina, you take it. He was only, I don't know, nine at the time. And I said, they won't yell at you. I said, I'm not going to bring a bat in the, in the stadium. You technically need Major League Baseball's permission to make bats for its players. So for Jack and his son to come into the stadium like every other fan coming in for the game and to deliver their bats to one of the guys that was actually going to play was pretty darn rogue. We walk all the way down, they're taking batting practice. And there's people around in the stands. I don't know what to do, it's the first time you know, I've done this. And um, Larkin kind of sees us, he gives us thumbs up, and everyone behind us is going, oh, that's funny, he recognized, you know. We're in the stands with everybody else, right behind the dugout. They're all trying to get autographs, and there's people everywhere. So the bat boy comes over. We hand the bat over to him, everyone's going, wow, how's he getting him to sign that bat? They're all going, yeah, how's he getting a sign? We're trying to get all of our, they're kind of getting mad. So the bad boy takes it right over to Larkin. Larkin starts putting on the, they call it a moda stick, the tackiness and like pine tar it up. And everyone starts going, wait a minute, he's going to hit with that bat. <laughs> you just brought it to him. And he starts taking BP. So we're watching the game. His second at bat, he was the first guy to get a hit with it, up the middle. And he goes, hey, that's big time. And um, that was the first hit. 
And to me, I said, that was it. I mean, I'm, I, this thing was in my backyard a couple days ago, and this guy's using Major League Baseball. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous. And when we come back, more of the story of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports. Here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series continues after these messages. back with our American stories and we return to the story of Jack Marucci, a father whose son asked him to make wooden bats that he could use in his little league and unintentionally these bats found their way into a major league game. Eduardo Perez, I can't say enough good things about him. He helped the company more than anybody. He was fantastic because he talked to all these players and he's showing them that I'm sending him more bats, and he's sneaking them in the game. He's leaving me voicemails. Man, I hit a Alinea against Nomo. And I mean, it was just the excitement of, it was like contraband. You know, we're sending contraband up there. And um, he goes, you're going to get a call from Manny Ramirez. I said, okay. He goes, you know how Manny is. One of only 25 players ever to hit 500 home runs. So I get a call from Manny Ramirez. He goes, I need some bats for the playoff run. You're going to be in the playoffs. You can't use these bats. So I said, well, Manny, we're, we're about to take off. We're about to play Georgia. And so we're getting on a flight, and I'm cutting them off. And I said, let me get back, and I'll cut them. So I spent three nights making bats because one of them I didn't quite like, so I redid it. I made three bats for them. I said, maybe, maybe I'll use them for batting practice or whatever. I don't know. And... Uh, so I put a model number on it. It's called a CB24. So this is 2004 now. And when I got pretty good by then. The finish, I, I was hand doing everything, putting a nice, I mean, it looked shiny. It looked like furniture. That's what Eduardo Presnell all said. It looks like furniture. Fast forward a couple years ago, I saw Orlando Cabrera on that same team. And why he's significant, I'm watching the game and Orlando Cabrera is using these bats in this playoff game. So I asked him. I never talked to Orlando about it. He used Manny's bats, I sent him. I said, weren't you afraid you're going to get in trouble? He goes, no. He goes, let me tell you something. I hit like 370 in that series. And those bats, that ball was coming off. So this was two years ago I'm talking to him about that 2004 playoff. And he goes, you know, I remember those bats like it was yesterday. And he goes, I always wanted to know, I didn't know what company it was, I wanted to order more, but never heard of it. And he goes, that model number, that CB. I said, well, let me tell you something. Somebody gave me a tip about five, six months after that series. They were on eBay. I found two of them. I have them in my office. I bought them back, I didn't tell them who I was. I have those two bats that you hit with in the playoffs. Cabrera hits it deep in front. So I said, you know what the CD stood for? He goes, no. I said, curse buster. I put CD to break the curse. 
the curse buster of the Yankees. The Red Sox hadn't won a World Series since 1918, 86 years ago. Allegedly cursed by their selling of Babe Ruth to the Yankees. All the way back in 1919. The Red Sox were down three games and they came back and they won the World Series. And I have those bats in my office. I told that story of the Hall of Fame. They wanted them. You know, it's just, it's one of those things. You just never know. And um, so Marucci Bats kind of started taking off. And the next big player would be Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran and we end up having the whole Met team. And all those people in the division saw those bats. Those guys were hitting well. And the Phillies took off with Ryan Howard won the World Series. Our whole team was covered with our bats. The word of mouth was unstoppable, and especially about the terrifically crazy stories that major leaguers like Carlos Beltran had and shared. At the time, you know, he ordered a half dozen. I always wanted him to order small amounts because I had to cut them at the time. And, and, and then, that, then we got more automated, obviously, but I, I was getting tendonitis. I, I swear to God, I, I got bad. This is the first time I had epicondylitis. I told him, that I would tell him that, and I would tell the clubhouse guy, if it's a bad guy, I don't care if he's the best player, but we don't want to do bats for him. We, we were trying to turn down business because the quality of wood, we only have so much. So he orders the bats, we ship them out, and I get a phone call from him. Jack, you... You only sent me five bats, I ordered six. I said, I know. He goes, what do you mean you know? I said, do you understand that I was trying to get you the six bat, I cut like 10 to 12 bats. They weren't the quality I wanted, in silence. He goes, that is unbelievable. So he goes, you you don't make like batting practice bats? No, what do you mean batting practice bats? So being naive and thinking, I'm just gonna give you the best quality. Companies that he was using says, you know, I only could get, I'm not gonna mention companies, but he going to use four to five bats out of the dozen. He thought the other ones were subpar. That's how they did it. Even for the most elite players in the most elite baseball league on the planet, the greatest of the great, it would be like giving Michael Jordan a pair of $30 sandals to play basketball in. If this is how they service the top, how do they service the rest of us. Our bats didn't matter if you were the lowest guy to our pool. It's the same wood. It was always the same. Nothing. There was no variance. And he loved it. So I always told people, you know, we were always chasing the quality. You're not going to chase the dollar. You're not going to chase that money. Chase the quality. The stuff will come. A lot of people flippantly say that they're focused on quality. It's one of those inescapable buzzwords like customer-focused, but that is rarely true. At Marucci, they refuse to put their seal on a bat unless it is absolutely perfect. We're dependent on an organic piece of material that it's not like a metal bat where you can fabricate it. You're not fabricating a piece of wood. You're dependent on Mother Nature, so you can get in a piece of wood and it may have ingrown bark, it have defoliation on it, it may not dry the right way, it could bend up bowing. So now you got to warp. So there's so many factors. And that's why the company decided to buy a wood mill on an Amish farm in Pennsylvania. 
so that they could have a stable supply source and one that they can control. At least try to. And still... If you look at the wood that comes in, probably only 13 to 14% is used for Major League Bats because of how selective we are. Their 86% rejection rate is absolutely nuts, and it's actually even worse, or Jack would say even better, given the commitment behind it. Once the approved wood gets into their process, they're able to make about 1,200 bats a day, and a big chunk of them won't make it through their quality control checks, about 300 of them. A fourth of their employees' daily work gone and wiped away. This translates into an actual rejection rate of 89.5%. And for some context on this, for how it is for most businesses, Johnsonville Sausage founder Ralph Steyer told us that he was concerned about their rejection rate of 5%. And he ended up getting it down to 0.5%. One bat maybe touched 22 to 24 sets of hands before it's out on the major league field. So it's, it's we're just, we're obsessive on quality. Then we start developing a, an idea. Players wanted to become part of what we're doing. Other companies are paying players to use their stuff. We've never paid a player to use a bat. Never thought, of, why would I do that? They, they want them. Why would, here's a novel idea. They want to buy into us. So. We have 18, probably 18 Major League Baseball players are investing in the company. So there's a lot more people that have probably benefited than I am, even financially, which is, which is good. Jack could do that, given that he doesn't care about the money. His concern is a greater one. The clubhouse guys loved us because we weren't in there all the time, and we weren't trying to sell to everybody, you know. I've told players if they act up early on that we don't want to do bats for you. If you're embarrassed, you wouldn't believe some of the conversations. We had a player throw a bat in the minor leagues, and I told him, if we, if we do this again, we're done. We're not making your bats anymore. You know, and it, some of these guys were never told stuff like that, but I, I believe that was the right thing to do. When you're not desperate like that, it, it makes you different. But then when you become a little bit driven by it, it, it changes things. So... We became the number one bat company probably about two and a half years ago. We passed the Louisville Slugger, and uh, by a pretty large margin now. But, um, you know, you're in sport, and it is a game of inches. And if those companies made that bat one inch longer, I wouldn't have probably made bats because they would have made a bat for my son, and I would have been it. <laughs> one inch. One inch. And what a story, folks. Chase the quality, the rest will come. And my goodness, what an idea, letting the Major League Baseball players themselves own a piece of the company rather than chasing them for a darned endorsement. When we come back, more of the life story of Jack Marucci, director of LSU's athletic training, founder of Marucci Sports, here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment and series continues.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Jack Marucci, who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat maker in Major League Baseball in the matter of only a decade. As a reminder, Jack Marucci is a world-class athletic trainer. He wasn't a world-class woodmaker or really a woodmaker at all. He took an eighth grade woodshop class and that was about it. He had to buy secondhand equipment, a lathe, for $150 just to hope to fulfill his son's simple dream of playing with a wood bat. So how is it even possible that this non-woodmaker, non-baseball expert made a bat that was so good that it became the highest selling in Major League Baseball. Was it pure luck? Did he just accidentally make something that was the best? From the outside looking in, it may seem like it. How did how'd you learn wood? How did we do it? I said, well, you go to the University of Google and you can learn a lot. Then you can go to, then you get a master's at the University of YouTube. And you know, there's so many resources if you use them and, and you have connections to call people. You talk to the physicist up in Michigan who's done a lot of testing and you learn, you pick their brain, you, you learn about wood with the people who make the drumsticks with all the great rock bands and you know there is, a, there, is, there is something to the type of wood and the way you dry it and there is formulas but you can learn that. You can if you, if you want to, the resources are there if, if you have the passion for it you can. If you have the willingness to, Jack was around 37 years old then, and a lot of folks at that age aren't willing to learn new things. Heck, I'm 29, and this city boy turned country boy finds it absolutely daunting to learn new things like taking care of a riding lawnmower. I I think it's part of our nature. That's why our parents and grandparents came over to this country. They were willing to take chances. I think it's built inside of us. I think we're a little bit more adventurous, maybe because of that. My mom was 11 when she came from Spain, and my grandfather's from Italy. So we're half Spanish, half Italian, but, and that was the makeup of most of the people we grew up with. Everybody was pretty ethnic. You know, we went to the Italian church and St. Teresa's, We thought that's how it was everywhere. (laughs) Notice how Jack said the Italian church, not the Catholic church. In immigrant hotbeds like Jack's Uniontown, Pennsylvania, or my ancestor's Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport, each ethnicity had its own Catholic church. No, it wasn't the Catholic, it was the Italian church. We went to, there was the Polish church, and you had the uh, Russian Orthodox church. That's how it was. So, I mean, you think, uh, you know, that's all you know as a kid. But um, her dad came over to be a coal miner. And we went back to see her where she grew up. It was like San Diego. I'm going, why would your dad leave this place? They lived right by the ocean. But I guess times were so bad. They had a civil war. The economy was bad and the war was breaking out. This was like in the early 40s. So, But her dad comes over here right before the war, War II. And he's trying to save money to bring the family up. But he can't get back and forth. So my mom didn't see him until 11 years, until he could save up the money. So she was 11 the first time she saw her dad. <laughs> her sister and her brother came over, didn't know English. They put them in second grade to learn English and they had to work their way up. 
Then my dad's side, my grandfather came over when he was 15. Then he got deported because you had to be 16. Or you can see it on the Ellis Island report. He got to Ellis Island <laughs> and somehow he got through all that. And they said, well, you're only 15. And they deported him back. So he had to go all the way back. Then he came back when he was 16. And these aren't a couple hour flights that we're talking about here. We're talking about boat rides across the ocean and long ones. It's gonna be probably a month. So he started a restaurant. So we came up kind of in the restaurant business. So my dad ended up being the butcher. My dad did the bartending. We did the managing him and his two sisters took over after my grandfather passed and was built from nothing. It was just a little deli. And they built it into a place where banquets could seat up to six, seven hundred people. I mean, it's, it just kept growing. And that's when I first probably came across the first professional athletes because we used to check coats, me and my brother. We're like 10 years old and you're checking coats, man. And they're giving you these big coats and which stay up late and we're so tired. I mean, it's like almost one o'clock and we never stay up this late. Imagine making your 10-year-old today stay up until 1 a.m. to work for you. You wouldn't be able to. The labor laws would call it child abuse. That was child abuse. We were so tired. We'd wrestle in there. We'd have coats all over the place. You know, we'd do whatever. And uh, we'd start being silly and, you know, we'd give him the coat and we'd, like, we're coughing, go, how about a buck? You know, we'd do something like that. How about a buck? You know, and so, so I mean, we would just do all these goofy things, but you could make, if it's a hundred coats, you're making a hundred bucks. You know, you split it, that's 50 bucks each. Not bad for a 10 year old. Joe Paterno would come in or, you know, for a banquet he was speaking. So we were a sports oriented family. Again, from the area where we grew up, a lot of people know the history of even just quarterbacks from there. Within a 50 mile radius of the city of Pittsburgh, they've had 36 NFL quarterbacks, including Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Joe Namath, Jim Kelly, and Johnny Unitas, leading it to be called the cradle of quarterbacks. And by the way, in basketball, Pistol Pete Maravich is from there too. The name Maravich is a very ethnic Croatian. But you know, I think then, and, and if you look at it from that culture, that's why you had a lot of Italian boxers. That's why you had a lot of Irish. You know, they were immigrants that came over here just trying to do anything to get out of poverty. So they learned to fight, they learned to start a restaurant. So they were very innovative. And I think that we were very fortunate to grow up in that type of culture. But when you're, when you're growing up, you don't, you have no idea. You're just living and breathing it. Not knowing that life's not like that for a lot of folks. And that this immigrant mentality is a gift. So, so we're going to Bamante's in New York. It's the oldest, I think it's, it's in the top 10 oldest restaurants in the New York metropolitan area. It's in Brooklyn. This restaurant was the one where they did the TV show, The Sopranos, they filmed a lot in there. So I get in there, it's not a big place. And I'm sitting there and all these people start coming in. Bobby Valentine comes in. There comes Tommy Lasorda comes walking in. And then Joe Episcopo comes walking in. 
And Leonardo DiCaprio comes along. I'm sitting next to the guy. We're, we're laughing. We're going to wake up tomorrow. Go, this, this really happens. People just start marching. All these Italians. Jack yeah, then here's like, here I am. Yeah, here I am from Uniontown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> And my goodness, if you didn't like Jack Marucci's story in those first two segments, my goodness, the flavor just keeps getting added into the mix. Of course, he's down in Cajun country now, but he was a a Pittsburgh boy, which means football, football, football. But it wasn't just that, folks. That early work experience as a young man, we hear this again and again in our successful entrepreneur stories, work young Child labor laws would have probably prevented Jack from getting some of the seminal experiences he needed that formed his character, formed his nature. And he was having fun. Yeah, he was up late, but 50 bucks he split. 50 bucks for a night as a 10-year-old. That'll get you working. And, of course, that immigrant story. We love the immigrant story here in this country. And remember, he didn't call it a Catholic church. He called it an Italian church. And I know because I went to an Italian church, the Sicilian part of my family. It was not a Catholic church. And that's why I was smiling. And you are, too. Jack Marucci's story. What a classic American story. YouTube in his way. Self-taught all the way into becoming America's premier bat maker. His story here on Our American Stories continues after these messages. American stories and now the final portion of this remarkable American dreamers stories on Jack Marucci who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball. Let's pick up where we last left off. On Marucci Sports' website there's video testimonies from MLB players including Albert Pujols and Andrew McCutcheon And even though their videos are supposed to be about baseball, how they honor the game and their Marucci bats, both of those guys started talking about their faith. Here's Pujols on hitting his 600th home run. First of all, I need to thank God for giving me the the opportunity and the ability to be able to do that. That's who I give all the glory and all the credit. And here's McCutcheon with just a ton of kids at the annual baseball camp he hosts in his hometown of Fort Meade, Florida. I'd like to thank all y'all for coming, all right? Anybody heard the Lord's Prayer? All right? Before every game, when I go out, I like to go out in the middle of center field, and I like to say a little prayer. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Powerful stuff and stuff that Jack's company keeps in the videos. Most of the media takes these uncool parts out, taking out of their stories what they say is the central force in their lives. It's important to who they are. It's important that people should hear that. That it don't be ashamed of it. I think people are coming more ashamed of it. They don't talk about it. So 
That's one of those things I think it's gotten slanted a little bit. So I think faith is, it's funny how when hard times come, people, they want faith, they want religion, you know. You should be, when good things, how about thanking it, you know, that, that side of it. Let's not, it's not always one side of it, but it's funny how people evolve back to that. Why is that? Well, there's something pulling you there. Faith is part of hope. And once you take hope away from people, it's not a good thing. You always, you know, when I talk to athletes, if they're injured, you always have that hope. Faith is the same lines. So faith gives people that hope, gives them comfort. We think that's very important to have that message because that's who they are. It's the right thing to do. And it's important to these people's lives. Paul says that, that, that is, he's strong with that. that that's, that's real now. It's not just saying it. He lives it. Coach Bowden lived it. Coach Bowden didn't cuss. He lived that life. And Jack doesn't cuss either. Even though this Italian Catholic comes from the perfect background for it. Believe it or not, I don't. I never smoked. I don't drink. And we grew up in a, you know, restaurant, and I, and I have nothing against it, but I don't know. I just, I just never never have it. I'm in an environment where cussing is very uh, <laughs> prominent. We had a coach one time. He came over. I'm not going to mention his name. I talked to him. He came in and goes, you know, I speak two different languages. He goes, I speak English and profanity. <laughs> and he did. And I think profanity might have been his uh, dominant uh, language. But, um, uh, and I have not, again, there's, there's not, we're in an environment of it, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you have to do that. If you go to church on, on a weekend, you should, it, it's a time to be thankful. <laughs> it's the only time where you really can sit down and, you know, we're so busy. And we try to say our prayers at night, but a lot of times, you know, we'll fall asleep or we're, we're exhausted or we, we do. We don't. But that's a time where you're, you're captured and just be thankful for what you have instead of going over all the negative stuff. But that's self-talk. That's a whole other topic and what we try to do and, you know, how, how the mind can overpower you. So, but that's where faith and religion can give you a little more clarity if, you, if you're invested in it. I've seen people change because of that. We have a player and his name's Cecil Collins. Cecil Collins was probably the best running back we ever had here. He only played three games and three and a half games. That's it. And yet Jack is insisting that he's still the best they've ever had. You can look at the YouTube stuff. He had a little, he struggled as a young player. He got in trouble. Unjustified, he was in prison for about 18 years. 18 years, he just got out a couple years ago. I reconnected, been trying to help him with some things, invite him to the bowl game. If, if, if religion didn't change his life, then it hadn't changed anybody's. He doesn't cuss anymore. He, he is a true testament. And he almost died in prison. He was eating, uh, it was like chicken and rice. There was a bone that cut him. He was internally bleeding. And they weren't going to take him to the dog. He finally got there. The surgeon saved his life. He was 150 pounds. And this guy, his personality, he is a unbelievable. He's a gem. He's got a family. He's, he's, he's become an electrician. Just a productive, this guy has a future. In just the way that Jack says, this guy has a future. You can hear how proud Jack is of him. And yet, that's not how a lot of mainstream culture would look at him. He's the best running back that LSU's ever had. Could have made tens of millions of dollars in the NFL. 
but now he's an electrician and you're saying that he's a gem and has a future? It says a lot about who Jack Marucci is and integrity that other people can't help but to respond to. When we were together, Jack pulled out his phone and played for me a voicemail that someone left for him the other day. He didn't do it to brag. He was just so tickled by it. I'm so happy for you. and I don't know you. I'm proud of you. I love what you do and how you do it. Love the story of your company. I wanted to let you know that John Brubaker shared it with my entire Major League staff here in spring training. We're listening to Clint Hurdle, the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And there were only a few of us that knew the story going in, so for about 50 guys, it was the first time they heard. Basically, a dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into, um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then, so professionally. So, if I can ever be of service to you, please let, let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. Um, then I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be a service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. Uh, buy you dinner or something. Okay? Over and out, buddy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That phone call also says a lot about Clint Hurdle. To be operating at the highest level of your profession as he is, and to make the time to call someone, someone you don't know, just to tell them how impressed you are by them and how they've lived their life. Think we could do that more in our lives? I know that I can. For Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And what a story. I think that may be my favorite right up there with Ralph Lauren and Bernie Marcus. And Our American Dreamers stories can be found at ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a bunch. And my goodness, great work as always to Alex Cortez. Our great crew here goes all over this country to find these great stories. And the redeeming virtue and feature of our stories is that we love to shine the light on the good. And unlike most media enterprises who shine light on the ugly and the train wreck, we love light and we love real hope and darkness. Well, turn to another channel if that's what you're looking for. And our American Dreamer series is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And Job Creators Network works hard to fight for public policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And by the way, the founder of Job Creators Network is a hero of mine, Bernie Marcus, who at 49 years old found himself out of work. He and two partners, Ken Langone and Arthur Blank, started a little company you all know now, and it's called Home Depot. And those three men built this great enterprise and then have spent their later years giving a lot of their money away and showing the virtue and generosity uh, that capitalism can bequeath. And I want to add also that you can get all of Our American Dreamer series stories over at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And so I want to leave this story playing the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates, 
message, his message that was on Jack Marucci's phone because it's worth hearing again. And don't we all wish that a message like this would be left on our phone by a complete stranger and that our life's work, what we do in our lives, our integrity and our character can leave this imprint and can make this kind of difference. Integrity and character, we talk about it a lot here on this show. Let's leave with Clint Hurdle. This is Our American Stories. Basically, Dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then, so professionally. So if I can ever be of service to you, please let, let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. Um, I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be of service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook. And go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Mm-hmm.